facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome to the program and welcome to February. It's a whole new month. It's a whole new show. The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149 is the number to call toll free to talk to me. 888-914-9149. Put me on speed dial. Put me in your phone. Put me in your contacts. One of your favorite contacts, hopefully. And give us a call. The listener line, listener line, of course, is sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters Life Insurance. 888-914-9149. And no, we will not give you a quote. you got to call them directly. But you can uh, certainly talk to me. And you can quote some other stuff to me. Quote some verse, quote some uh, things that you've seen that you're interested in that you want me to comment on. I would love to chat with you. Got got a lot to talk about today. We're going to be talking about later how the Catholic Church is, in fact, the true church. The early church is the Catholic Church. When I was outside of the Catholic Church, there was this theory that was out there that there was a great apostasy. Now, this was picked up on by even some non-Christian groups like Mormonism that just a short while after the apostles were on the scene, the church went completely off the rails and needed to be rescued centuries later by the Protestant Reformation headed by Martin Luther and many, many others. But what really happened? Did the early church really go off the rails? Well, we're going to see how the earliest believers believed Catholic things, Catholic doctrines and practices. And we're going to see that very clearly, especially in the writings of St. Ignatius of Antioch. He is my favorite father of the church. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the impact of Taylor Swift at the Super Bowl. I am I am totally in favor of this, by the way, and I'll explain why uh, later in the program. We never did get to talk about the NFC Championship game, the AFC Championship game, our staff picks, how they turned out, uh, who looked like a genius. Uh, <laughs> A little pride there, a little pride there. I got one right for a change, but we'll, we'll talk about that later in the program. But but I want to I want to start with this because I meant to do this yesterday, but we uh, we didn't have a chance to get into this because of various things. We had a lot of phone calls, which is always awesome, and I'll take I'll take phone calls over anything I have to say any day of the week. But this is a, a really interesting piece that I that I read that I just have not been able to get out get out of my mind, and I. I, I <laughs> I'll tell you what it's called. It's called Why I Never Run for Airplanes. Why I Never Run to Catch an Airplane. Now, it's about that, but it's about much more than that. And I think it has some really spiritual uh, application as well, which we'll we'll get into. But this this piece was actually written by Mark Randolph. Now, Mark Randolph was one of the co-founders of Netflix, along with Reed Hastings and... Mark Randolph, um, business guy, entrepreneur, obviously, interesting dude. I've, I've written, a, I've read a few articles that that uh, that he's written, and uh, this is this is an intriguing one that I came across that he wrote about why he never runs to catch a plane, and and I, I've done that. You've probably done that. Maybe during Thanksgiving time, the Christmas season, we're getting into vacation season now. I guess for a lot of people, they're going down south. Um, and uh, producer Jim and I were talking before the show about, uh, he said, have you ever been to the Chicago? Yes, I've been to the Chicago airport. And uh, there's a reason why O'Hare, the call signs, uh, the call sign for O'Hare is O-R-D. 
because it's an ordeal. And I've had to run from one terminal to the next trying to trying to catch a, a flight, uh, barely making it. But according to Mark Randolph, he said, don't do it. Do, do, not, do not run to catch a plane. Never run to catch a plane. Why? Well, let me just uh, read what, what, he, what he has uh, penned here for us. Uh, and I'm going to quote him here. He says, before COVID, I used to spend a lot of time in airports. And no matter what city I was in, no matter what time of day, I saw it at least once. A harried traveler sprinting through the terminal, trailing rolling suitcases, scarves, you know, trailing behind them, sometimes even small children in their wake, in a desperate attempt to make it to their gate before the door closed. And every single time, it made me shake my head. Not because I'm smug about being early for my own flight, but because over decades of traveling, I've learned something very, very important. You should never, ever run for a plane. And he says it's, it's kind of his personal philosophy, if you will. And he, he started with this philosophy because back in the 1980s, he, he worked out of a, um, the European headquarters of a software company. And he would have to travel quite a bit around Europe because they had regional offices all, all around the continent. And just about every week, you would have to visit three or four different offices somewhere in Europe, usually as a day trip. He would catch an early flight out of Paris. He would land in Madrid at 8 in the morning. He'd spend the day in some conference room. Then he'd fly home that night, and then he would start the process all over again the next day. Maybe he'd go to London. Maybe he'd go somewhere else. And he was flying six to eight times a week. And he said he learned an awful lot during that experience. How to, how to, he learned a, bu- a bunch of travel hacks. I'll have to try this one. He said he, he used to pack his rolled up belt into the collar of his spare shirt so it wouldn't wrinkle in carry on luggage. Thanks, Mark. That's, that's a good tip. Which cafe had the best cappuccino in the Milan airport? Uh, which uh, lounge was best to nap in in Copenhagen? But he, he said it took him a long time to realize. How foolish it was to ever try to run to catch a flight. But it, but it happened to him all the time. He would go to Stockholm or, or a meeting would run late in Amsterdam and he'd find himself race walking through passport control. And then he'd break into a full-on sprint like Usain Bolt. And, and he, as he reached the open concourse, he writes, My polished black Oxford, Oxfords were clopping on the tile. My tie was whipping behind my shoulders. And he talks about a fateful day in Paris when all of this changed for him. And he said he was running to catch his plane, and he made it. He had just made it before the scheduled departure time. And he was really proud of himself. He was super proud that he made it. Uh, He ran all the way through Charles de Gaulle Gaulle Airport in Paris. But he was super, super sweaty and super, super uncomfortable. And and he's sitting there, and he's sweating, and he's, he's wearing a wool overcoat, and he's in the middle seat of his row. And then he's, he's sitting there sweating. And as he sits there, nothing happens. The plane just sits there with the door open for five minutes, even though it's past the departure time. And then 10 minutes. And, and then 15 minutes. And then, and then a couple of very, very relaxed passengers walk through the door and just sit down very calmly. They're not sweating. He's like, well, what's going on here? 20 minutes go by. 30 by the time the door finally closes and he takes off, he had been marinating in his own sweat for over an hour. And, and he says, I, I could have been blindfolded and on crutches and still made that flight on time. So he was super frustrated, but he was always, 
it kind of made him a little bit curious. He said, how often does running for your flight actually make a difference in whether or not you make it onto the airplane? And so he started crunching the numbers. He started working the data. And he figured out that he'd probably run to catch about 50 flights the year before. And he couldn't remember a single time where he'd scored the winning goal just as the buzzer sounded. Every time, he'd either made it to his seat with plenty of time to spare, or by the time he got there, the lounge was totally empty because the plane had already taken off. And he'd look out the window and see it you know, taxiing down the runway. So he started comparing notes with other road warriors in the business world. And he he figured out, just, just doing the stats, he figured out that running to catch a plane probably made a difference maybe once out of... A hundred times, one out of a hundred. And he says this, quote, I promise you a 1% chance of success is not enough to ruin a suit over, you know, to sweat through this thing. It's not worth sweating uncontrollably next to a disdainful Parisian sitting next to you. 1% simply is not worth the stress of the sprint. So this is Mark Randolph writing writing this this, uh, little post why he never runs to catch an airplane. 1% of the time, you're actually going to make it. It's actually going to make a difference. But that's not worth the stress, one out of 100 times. So for the next 25 years, he said, he's flown about 3 million air miles, and he never has once run for a plane ever again. But this isn't really about running to catch a plane, although it's a good tip. It's a good tip that really doesn't make a difference, so don't don't worry about it. He said it's really a way of thinking about work-life balance. And why is that? Because he said in the, in the business world, entrepreneurs, leaders, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show that there's a bit of a spiritual application to this as well, which I think is unintended by him, but I, I really think there is, as Mark Randolph, the uh, co-founder of Netflix, is writing this piece about why it's never a good idea to run to catch a plane. He says that in the business world, leaders will often brag, they'll humble brag about how, how attentive they are to the details negotiations, big, big mergers and acquisitions, that kind of thing. Every time they're in a negotiation, they'll make sure that every deal point is perfect. They'll review every underling's decision to make sure everything gets right. They'll look at a pitch deck and they'll modify the size of the fonts, thinking you just never know what's going to make the difference. What detail is going to be the one that closes the big deal? And he says, he hears this stuff all the time. And he says, when he hears people talk like this, It's the sound of someone running to catch a plane. 99% of the time, those little things do not make a difference at all. Now, sure, sure, they they make a difference. They look better. If you've got the right font, your slides are going to look better. But he would argue if you won the deal, if you got the contract, if you won the deal, you were always going to win that deal. That's what he would argue. And, And if you didn't get the deal, if you weren't selected not making those last few little tweaks probably wasn't the thing that sunk you in the end. He says, quote, you don't close the deal at four o'clock in the morning in a last minute review. You close the deal two weeks before the meeting. And you didn't miss your plane in the mad dash through security. You missed your plane three hours before your flight when you slept through your alarm. And knowing that, what's more important? The stressful, painful sprint with a 1% success rate or a pleasant afternoon that doesn't end with you spraining your ankle in front of an airport Cinnabon. So I think that's a good point. 
That's a good point. And then he, he kind of goes on about how he, he tried really, really hard in his career to maintain work-life balance. He, he talked about how on Tuesday nights, and he has a book where he writes about this. On Tuesday nights, that was his date night with his wife, and that was completely sacrosanct. Nothing would ever get in the way of that. Um, even when he was, you know, working at Netflix and found, helping to found Netflix and how crazy busy it must have been through everything that was going on, he said for 30 years he had a hard cutoff on Thursday afternoon. Rain or shine, crisis or no crisis, doesn't matter. He left the office exactly at 5 p.m. on the dot, and then he spent the evening with his best friend, his wife. They'd go to a movie, they'd have dinner, maybe just go window shopping downtown, but absolute, whatever they did, nothing would get in the way of that. No conference call, no last-minute request. He says that if, if somebody had something to say to him on Tuesday afternoon at 4.55 p.m., they better say it on the way to the parking lot because I'm out of here. I'm, I'm going for my date night with my wife. But he said that really is what kept him sane, and making that hard cutoff and, and having that time with, with his wife. That kept the rest of his life in perspective. That kept kept his work in perspective and... He writes, quote, it's a lot easier to see your work when you take time away from it. That meeting can wait until the morning. That task can be delegated to someone else. The company is not going to go belly up because you didn't handcuff yourself to your desk all throughout Tuesday evening. Sometimes a problem only looks big because it's all you've been looking at. And so he counsels uh, every entrepreneur that he meets to, to make sure, you got to make sure, he says, that you've got a life outside of work, a hobby, a group of friends, something to do besides sitting in front of a, a monitor at your desk. Get a life. Get a life. It'll actually help your work. And, and one more thing, if you're running through the airport trying to make a flight, don't do it and, and don't break a sweat. So I, I read this and I thought, this is a really cool article, and but it, it got me thinking about about the spiritual life a little bit as well. It's really, just reading this this piece, it's really about, uh, I would say, four Ps, right? It's about planes, yeah. Don't don't run to catch a plane. Um, if you miss your flight, it's only going to happen one out of a hundred times, but it's not the end of the world. Uh, but it's also about a, a couple other things as well. It's about planning. It's about planes, it's about planning, it's about people, and it's about peace. Well, let's talk about the planning stuff. As he says, you, you didn't miss your flight because you were, you know, there was a huge lineup at security. You missed your flight because you didn't you didn't wake up on time when your alarm went off hours before and you didn't get to the airport in the allotted time. So that 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 happened a long time before you even got there that you missed your flight. And I'm thinking, you know, we're really on this journey to paradise, to the promised land of heaven, and we're catching some of you guys are getting ready in a couple of weeks to catch a flight down south to paradise, an earthly paradise of sorts. Maybe play some golf. That sounds pretty good. But but if you miss your flight, it's it's not because the security lineup was long. You missed your flight a long time before that even happened. So if we're trying to get to heaven, we're trying to get to the paradise of heaven, if we don't make it, if we don't make it tragically, it's not because of of some last-minute decision that you made. This This started a long, long time ago in your life. So you're you're on a you're on a trajectory to miss that flight to heaven way way before, and 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 it's 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 probably not going to be because of some last minute bad decision that happens to you.
And then you get hit by a truck and then it's too late. You can't repent. That's probably not what's going to happen. It probably started a long, long time ago. So you've got to have a plan. You've got to have a plan for your spiritual life. You've, you've got to have what spiritual writers call a plan of life. You've got to have a well-thought-out vision of how you're going to get there. Because we, we know in the, in the Catholic Church, we know that because of our baptism, we're called to become saints, to become canonizable saints. But most people never ask the question, well, how am I actually going to do that? How am I going to get there? What is your game plan? How are you going to get on that, that, that flight? And, and that, this is what we really need to be thinking about. When are we going to be doing our prayer when, throughout the day? What, how, what are the times we're going to set aside for prayer? What, what, when are we going to read a, a few minutes from the New Testament? When are we going to try to get to Mass? That's the most important thing we could do every day, if possible. Of course, on Sundays, we, we need to. We must. It's our obligation but, but even that, I mean, it sounds almost funny to me because we should we get to go to Mass. We don't have to go to Mass, although we do. We get to go to Mass. When are we going to do our spiritual reading? You just, when are we going to pray our rosary? Maybe it's with Father Rocky and the Family Rosary Across America, and that's kind of a date that you've set at 7 p.m. Central every night. Or you catch the podcast later. But, but whatever the case may be, you've got to have a plan. And that, it all starts, it, it starts ahead of time. Getting to heaven starts way ahead of time. And missing the flight also, unfortunately, happens way ahead of time as well. And so that, that's, that's the planning part. And then people. That's the other P. So planes, planning, people. I like how he talked about his wife. I like how Mark Randolph talked about work-life balance, how he, he absolutely had that hard cut off for 30 years. He was a pretty successful guy. He was working his butt off, no, no, no question about it. But it wasn't the ultimate end game. Because our work is extremely important for our, for our lives, for our, putting food on the table, for our holiness, to try to sanctify our work. But at the end of the day, though, it's still a means to an end. And, and the end, of course, is, is heaven. It's trying to get to heaven and take as many people with us as possible. If you're, an, if, you're the, if you're the employee of the year, but your marriage is falling apart, I'm sorry, you're not a success. You're not, you're not successful. You probably shouldn't be employee of the month if you're pulling so much overtime that you never see your kids. There's something wrong there. And so he, he made sure that that never happened in that relationship with his wife. And that's a good, I'll be honest with you, it's a good rebuke for me because I need to do that more. I need to have more regular date nights with, with my wife. And I'm not just saying that because she's probably listening right now. But, uh, but it's true. It's absolutely true. And so the last thing, though, is, is, is peace. Planes, planning, people, and peace. Jesus said, my peace be with you. My peace be with you. My, I do not give peace as the world gives peace. When things go bad, when things go bad, don't lose your peace. That, that's such a battle. That's such a battle. My favorite spiritual writer, I think he's the greatest living spiritual writer on planet Earth right now, is uh, Father Jacques Philippe. And his book, he's written a lot of great books. They're little, short little books, but they really pack a punch. And I recommend them to everybody for spiritual reading. One of the things that he says in his book, Searching for and Maintaining Peace, it's a small treatise on peace of heart. Love that book. Need to memorize it. I've talked about it before. The biggest battle of all, really, is, is the battle to keep your peace, to not lose your peace, even if things are completely off the rails. So let's say you miss your plane, Okay. As long as you, well, this is why it's a good idea to book early flights, by the way, because if you do miss your plane, 
chances are there, there's another flight later in the day that you could probably get on. So don't book your flight for you know 11 p.m. at night if you want a second chance. But most of the time when things go bad, when things go off the rails, it's still going to be okay. Things are still going to work out unless unless it's something a total catastrophic event. You're, and we all have things that kind of mess up our day and we miss the flight or this happened, that happened, there's a traffic jam, whatever. But usually things will somehow work out. There's a later flight. There's a later flight. And for us in the spiritual life, if we kind of miss the plane, if we, there's a second chance. If, if we've, we've botched things completely, there's a mortal sin involved, let's say, you can go to confession. You can repent. You can, you can have a second stab at it, the third stab, fourth stab. Thank God for the gift of forgiveness in the church and, and, and the sacrament of confession. So you can, you can kind of get back on track, get to your destination. So planes, planning, people, and peace. That's what this uh, little anecdote made me think of. So uh, I don't know. I just, I just couldn't get that one out of my head. I thought I'd share it with you on the K.O. Clark Show, 888-914-9149. If you want to call in, react to that. And we'll be right back after these brief messages. you keep your mind off traffic and on the more important things in life it's kale clark on relevant radio hey welcome back to the program on this first day of february triple eight nine one four nine one four nine is the number to call and i wanted to talk a little bit about one of my favorite saints of all time he's certainly my favorite church father and the church fathers, especially the apostolic fathers of the church, these are the guys who essentially took over leadership of the church after the death of the apostles. And they were all martyred except for one guy, John the Apostle. And speaking of John, John knew this guy, kind of trained this guy, who I'm going to talk about today, St. Ignatius of Antioch. Now, his feast day isn't until October. His feast day is October the 17th. But for a long, long time, from the 12th century up until the liturgical reforms of the late 1960s, his feast day was actually today, on February the 1st. Now, I'm not exactly sure why it was on February the 1st, uh, origi- you know, originally, but the day of his martyrdom is thought to have been uh, October the 17th. So it kind of makes, makes sense why, um, why it would be uh, changed to that day. But, but having said that, I was looking at, uh, I got this really interesting collection of liturgical books from a, a bookstore called Beretta Books. Beretta Books. Now, if you've ever been to St. John, if you're in the Chicagoland area, and many of our listeners are, if you ever get to go to Chicago and see the beautiful church, St. John Cantius, they have a really cool bookstore in the basement called Beretta Books. So shout out to these guys. Uh, I got some really cool liturgical books, and I was looking at one of them today, and it talked about the fact that St. Ignatius, his feast day used to be today. And it was kind of like, th- these books were kind of based on the old liturgical calendar. And... Um, What's, I, I love this guy so much because his letters, he, he kind of wrote these seven, I'm going to call them love letters to the church. There, there, there's seven letters that he wrote, just as St. Paul wrote letters to different churches and 
on the Faith Explained right now. We're going through uh, St. Paul's letter to the Romans, and he's going to get real practical starting tomorrow on the Faith Explained. We're going to—he's going to apply everything that we've learned to daily Catholic living. It's going to be super practical, super important. So check that out, twelve thirty Central. But just like St. Paul, almost St. Ignatius of Antioch wrote seven letters to seven different churches. Some of them are mentioned in the Bible. And he wrote these letters on the way to his martyrdom in the Roman Colosseum. And uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is Gladiator. And when you see the Colosseum, and obviously they did a lot of CGI in Gladiator. There's going to be a Gladiator too. I don't know if this is necessarily a good idea. But, of course, uh, Gladiator number one, one of the main characters in the movie was Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, uh, second century. And... And, and he was a, a Stoic philosopher. And, and one of the things we talked about today on, on The Faith Explained was how St. Paul, he, he, he says some stuff that a lot of people think maybe he was a Stoic philosopher because he said something, and Marcus Aurelius said the exact same thing later on. And he was like thinking about this in terms of Stoicism. Um, and St. Paul was certainly exposed to this. I'm getting on a huge rabbit trail here. But anyways, Marcus Aurelius, great philosopher. He wrote these meditations. He was a Stoic philosopher probably heard about him but anyways the, the movie gladiator i thought was really really cool <clears throat> because when i went to the to the coliseum in rome the one time i was ever in rome i took a tour of the coliseum and it was really very much like it uh it was in the movie in that we like if you if you if you, you can put on these headsets and get these sort of guided tours by scholars that you listen you listen to them sort of guide you here's where you're walking this is what you're looking at right now it was incredibly technologically ahead of its time. You think about stadiums of the modern age, like the Super Bowl is going to be um, in a couple of weeks in Las Vegas at Allegiant Stadium, state-of-the-art. Um, a couple of years ago, it was in SoFi in, in, in LA. Billions and billions of dollars were spent on these stadiums. Well, the, the Coliseum was just as impressive in its own day. I mean, indoor plumbing? Nobody had that. You know, there were there were washroom facilities in the fifth deck. You know, it just, it, it's it's like, it was almost like a modern stadium in, in a certain sense. And, and they, they had the ability to flood the Colosseum, the floor of the Colosseum, the main battle area, if you will, in the Colosseum. They could flood it with water, and they would literally have these naval battles. They would, they would roll out these ships, and all of these men who were condemned to death that were sort of kept in the galleys, just like in the movie Gladiator. A lot of them were slaves. A lot of them were criminals. They were in there, and they had to fight to, de- to the death in the gladiator fights, but sometimes they would make them do naval battles. They'd roll out these ships, uh, float them out onto the Colosseum on the, on the water, and they would have these battles. They, they'd jump. It'd be like Pirates of the Caribbean. They'd jump up from one ship onto another and then have these huge battles, and pff, gory, absolutely gory. So all of this stuff was, uh, was pretty fearsome, and this is exactly the environment that St. Ignatius of Antioch was thrown into. He was chained to a Roman soldier, he was the Bishop of Antioch. Peter himself, it is said according to tradition, Peter himself ordained Ignatius of Antioch. And he was the, the second bishop in Antioch after Peter. Don't forget, St. Peter himself was in Antioch before he went to Rome. And according to the Acts of the Apostles, it was in the city of Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Before then, it was said that they belonged to the way, quote-unquote, the way. Just members of the way, and they were called Christians in Antioch. So I don't know who the other dude was in between, but Antioch uh, was the place where uh, Peter was, and there's this other guy who took over for Peter when he went to Rome, and then, 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 and, and if Peter had stayed in Rome, by the way, 
Antioch, or sorry, if Peter had stayed in Antioch, Antioch would have been the the headquarters of the worldwide church, not Rome. It's only Rome because Peter went there as the first pope. Having said that, Ant, uh, Ignatius of Antioch is the third bishop, but he certainly knew Peter. He also knew John. He was personally instructed by John the Apostle, which is pretty crazy to think about. The reason why I say all this is because when you read his writings, when you read the seven letters that he wrote to seven churches on the way to his martyrdom, I mean, the Romans weren't knuckleheads. They were really smart. They figured, kill the general and the troops will scatter. Let's arrest the bishops and martyr them in grisly ways in the public square, and hopefully everyone will abandon this whole Christianity thing, this whole Catholicism thing. Well, it didn't really work, obviously. The, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, as another church father said. So he was chained to some Roman soldiers that were very brutal to him. He called them in his letters the Ten Leopards because they were so mean. And they paraded him out throughout the empire sort of to deter. This is what's going to happen to you if you stick with this Jesus movement. But it didn't work. Every city he stopped in, he would preach to people. He would encourage them. He would say, don't try to rescue me. I, I want to go to the Colosseum. I want to get thrown to the wild beasts and the gladiator fights. Why? He said, I want, to, I want their teeth, the teeth of the lions, to grind me down like pure bread for Christ. Wow. Wow. I mean, he was, he wanted to be martyred. You know, he was, I mean, he wasn't looking for martyrdom, but he wasn't running away from it. That's for sure. And so, um, in his letters, what we have, and you can look them up. This would be great, great spiritual reading for you in this upcoming season of Lent, which is less than two weeks away. I know it's hard to believe, uh, Valentine's day is Ash Wednesday, but you can Google them. They're on the internet for free. Seven letters to seven churches of St. Ignatius of Antioch. They're, they're incredibly beautiful. But one of the things that you notice when you read them is that the church was doing very, very Catholic stuff very early on. Ignatius was, was arrested and martyred in the year 107 AD. And I'm going to read to you some of the stuff that's in his letters um, concerning Catholic belief and practice. So it's very, very common for non-Catholics to say that a lot of stuff that Catholics believe and practice was invented in medieval times or centuries and centuries after the church got going, maybe after Constantine converted and legalized the faith in, you know, in the 4th century, then some crazy stuff started to creep in, and all of these pagan practices attached themselves to the church. The good bark of Peter, just like barnacles attaching themselves to the hull of a, of a ship. But that, that is not the, the case. And we see here in the writings of Ignatius of Antioch, who's part of the first generation of believers, so many Catholic doctrines and practices. I just want to want to share with you just a couple of things here. Uh, first of all, the whole name, the Catholic Church. Where does this come from? Well, when Ignatius is writing his letters, he mentions this this phrase, and he mentions it in his letter to the church at Smyrna. And you might say, "Where's Smyrna?" Smyrna is one of the cities in Asia Minor that's mentioned in the Book of Revelation. And uh, it's one of the seven letters to seven churches that, that Jesus writes. And, and Ignatius does something very similar, seven letters to seven churches. And in the letter to the Smyrnians in chapter 8, this is what he says. See that you all follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the Father. And the presbyters, and by the way, those are the priests. You might have heard the word presbyter. Well, the English form of presbyter is priest. You can look it up in any dictionary. 
follow the priest as you would the, the priests as you would the apostles and reverence the deacons as being the institution of God. Okay, so right there you've got bishop, priest, and deacon, the three degrees of holy orders right there. And this is this is the turn of the century. Okay, so this is not again and, and Paul talks about it in his letters too in the New Testament. These aren't later inventions. Ignatius of Antioch goes on to say, let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by one to whom he has entrusted it. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude of the people also be, even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Okay, this is the first time ever in writing that's ever been dug up by archaeology that someone has used the, the phrase the Catholic Church. 107 AD in one of St. Ignatius of Antioch's letters. So if he's using this, by the way, he doesn't even explain it. He's like, oh yeah, have you ever heard of the Catholic Church? It's this. He just says it as if everybody knows what he's talking about. So people were using that phrase, the Catholic Church, before he wrote this down. So it's very, very early, very early, that the church that Jesus founded was called the Catholic Church. And they needed to come up with this name. They needed to differentiate its, itself from because there were other there were other groups, there were breakaway groups even in the first century, and this is mentioned in the New Testament. Um, there were all kinds of Gnostic groups, heretics that broke away from the church, started their own little club, say we've got the real truth over here, but you have to join our secret club to find out. And the church said, no, 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 no. The the truth is out there, like the X Files. It's public. It's not secret. Anybody can access it. Um, and it's in the Catholic Church. It's for all people. It's for all times. It's not for your little group of people. It's for everybody. It's Catholic. It's universal. So that, that, that the first time it was ever written down, Catholic Church, that we can find is in, is in one of his letters. So the, this idea of the bishop is, is super important as well because he, he says this. Let us. This is in another letter to the Ephesians, and St. Paul obviously wrote to the Ephesians as well. He says, let us be careful then to not set ourselves in opposition to the bishop in order that we may be subject to God. So ooh, he, he basically says, don't do anything without the bishop because that, that's the way God has set, has set this up. So he's going he's gonna to say a few other things here, which I'll tell you in just a second, but let's, let's take a quick phone call here. Jim is calling from California. Hi, Jim. Hi. Um, hey, how you doing? I turn off my... Oh, can you hear me okay? I'm doing fine. I can, I can hear you, yeah. Okay. Listen, I'm so happy. I just turned the radio on, driving home from work, and I uh, heard you talking talking about Ignatius of Antioch. He is my favorite saint. And, um, awesome. I, I used to consider myself sort of an amateur expert on him because I have a doctorate in ancient history, and I can read wow. Greek and all that stuff. So, um, That's awesome. I'm going to. I'd like to point out one thing sure. that you haven't mentioned. That I forget which epistle. I'm getting rusty because I'm getting old. That's <laughs> okay. I haven't looked at this for a long time, but I compiled a reader's Greek English lexicon of all his epistles. Wow! And I tried to get a publishing company, a Catholic publishing. Was it maybe it was Protestant? And they weren't interested in it because they said it wasn't extensive enough just to publish one thing like that. Hmm. And I never went back to it. Okay. Um, but anyway... But you read his letters in, in Greek. You were, of, you were super involved with that. That's right. In any case, 
you'll know this probably. I forget which epistle it's in. It may be in Smyrna's. But he says, the heretics, I forget exactly how it's worded, heretics are heretics because they do not believe that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. And the word he uses is sarx, that means flesh. And I wish the Protestants would all read that, (laughs) you know? You know, Jim, I'm so glad you mentioned that because uh, th- th- that's definitely something I-, I was gonna I was gonna say about Ignatius as well. When I when I show this to my my evangelical friends, my Protestant friends, especially guys who are who read the Bible a lot or are super into it, this is one thing that really grabs their attention and it really gets them thinking. And, and what Jim is talking about is is another one of the letters that Saint Ignatius of Antioch wrote. And it's the letter to the church at Smyrna. We quoted from that letter earlier. But in chapter 6 of his letter to the Smyrnians, now I'm going to read you an English translation in Greek. Jim knows it in Greek. And yeah, if you can read Greek. And by the way, Greek keeps us sharp. It, it, they say learning another language and scholars used to read their Bible in Greek every day, their New Testament, they, they stay sharp. I don't know. So just brain synapses begin to form. But here's what he says. Now, this is an, an English translation. Ignatius of Antioch says, take note of those who hold heterodox opinions. That's heretical opinions, as Jim was saying. False teachings. Take note of those who hold heterodox opinions on the grace of Jesus Christ, which has come to us, and see how contrary their opinions are to the mind of God. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. So that, that's the quote from Ignatius of Antioch. And you're right, Jim, he uses this word sarks, which is the word for flesh. So he's, he's hammering home the, the, corpor- the, the reality uh, uh, of, of, of the Eucharist and the real presence of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. And what's really cool about this is that don't don't forget who his teacher was in the faith. It's the Apostle John himself. And if you look at John's Gospel, this comes from um, Ignatius was writing in Smyrnians chapter 6, the church at Smyrna. If you go to John chapter 6 in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, that's the big bread of life discourse that Jesus preaches in the synagogue at Capernaum. And he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the, it's the Eucharistic realism. And he just keeps hammering it home. And John six fifty one, the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I mean, and everyone's just like, we can't, we can't, we can't take this. We can't handle this. We can't handle the truth. And some of them start walking away from him. And he lets them go. He doesn't say, I was only kidding, guys. So I'm only speaking symbolically. He, he really just doubles down on this. And I just think if anybody understood what John really meant when he wrote his gospel and he's talking about the Eucharist, he's... John himself is reflecting the teaching of Jesus. Jesus spoke. John recorded it. Ignatius is the disciple of John. So he, I think he, I would much rather trust this guy who knew John, who knew the man, he knew the man who knew the man, than some guy who comes along in the 16th century and says, nah, nah, the Eucharist isn't real. It's just a symbol. I'm going to trust the guy who knew John. Because John knew Jesus. So to me, this is this is absolutely crucial evidence. And, and Jim, I'm so thankful that you that you raised that. Are you still there, Jim? So happy. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Sure. Can. Yes. I'm. I'm just thrilled that you're talking about this. 
And um, then you took my call. I, I, um, I suppose you may be mentioning more. There are more nuggets in those epistles yeah. of his that um, everyone ought to know. Yeah, there, there are a, a couple more nuggets I want to I want to throw in there for sure. So, so why don't we do it? We're going to take a little break. Hey, Jim, I thank you so much for calling uh, in California. I'm so glad you're listening. So glad you called in, and please call back anytime. Who uh, Jim obviously did some some deep research into the original Greek text of uh, the letters of Saint Ignatius of Antioch. But he's such an important church father because he's early, and and it shows that that the early church was the Catholic church, that the, the early church believed Catholic stuff. And so if, if you really want that old-time religion, as one writer said, you got to go back to old times. All right, we'll be right back on The Kale Clark Show right after this, 888-914-9149. Be right back. Explaining the faith so you can explain it to others. It's The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Hey, welcome back to the program, 888-914-9149 is the number to call to talk to me for free, 888-914-9149. Having a fun show, talking about St. Ignatius of Antioch, his martyrdom in the Roman Colosseum, thrown to the wild beasts, but before that happened, he left behind seven precious letters, and also a letter to Polycarp, who was also martyred to the faith for the faith. Uh, and they were kind of pals. They were both uh, students of the Apostle John, if you will, grad students of the Apostle. How cool is that? And uh, Polycarp also was burned at the stake, uh, gave his life for Christ, too. But before we get back into this, I just want to say that you can have a really transformative Lent for you and your family in a couple different ways. I think, again, great spiritual reading for Lent, the seven letters of St. Ignatius, look, it up, look them up online. And you can also, of course, watch Father Rocky's Lenten Lessons on the Mass, bite-sized glimpses into every prayer and word, all the way from the sign of the cross to the final blessing. You can get these free video lessons every day of Lent. They'll be delivered to your inbox from Ash Wednesday to Holy Saturday, sponsored by the National Center for Padre Pio, at least in part. And you can transform your 40 days of Lent with 40 lessons on the Mass with Father's Eucharistic Encounters as well. Don't forget about those. Find all of this information at relevantradio.com slash Lent. All right. I'm going to uh, just go to, I'm going to go to Joe online too. Joe in Wellington, New Jersey, near Newark. Hi, Joe. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. A little trivia question for you. Sure. Where was the world's largest naval battle as per number of vessels involved? I know the answer, but I want you to tell the people. The Colosseum in Rome. The Colosseum in Rome. Yes, when they flooded. They had little boats. They they weren't all the big warships in there. They had all kinds of little vessels floating around. And I believe when I was there, they said there were over 400 vessels at one time in there. Yeah. You know, know, this wasn't a naval battle at sea. That was flooded, and they had 400 different vessels in there. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, what what was going on in the Colosseum? And, and uh, th- thanks so much for mentioning that, Joe. The largest naval battle that wasn't at sea happened in the Colosseum at Rome. How about that? And a great book that you guys can read about this, by the way. Um, it's it's This is really well done. I really enjoyed this book. It's a book called Four Witnesses by Rod Bennett. It's published by Ignatius Press. 
And he talks about four figures in the early church that are witnesses to the truth of Catholicism. Ignatius of Antioch is one of them. Clement of Rome is another one. Uh, St. Irenaeus of Lyon is a third. And the fourth guy is Justin Martyr, St. Justin Martyr, uh, the great apologist. So what's really cool is he kind of takes their life stories and, and gives us snippets of their actual writings. But he, but he, it's almost like historical. It's a historical novel. The way he explains it and he, when, the section where he talks about the Colosseum and what was going on the day of uh, the martyrdom of Ignatius is really good. It's really well done. So Four Witnesses by Rod Bennett, published by Ignatius. That's a, that's a good read. That's a really good read. So just a, just a couple of quick snippets also. Uh, other things that he talked about in his letters um, showing that the early church was the Catholic Church. Let's talk about the fact that it's headquartered at Rome, that the church at Rome does have a preeminence over all the other churches. Here's what he says in his letter to the Romans. He's, 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 when he writes to the Roman church, it's a little bit different than anything he says to any of the other churches that he writes to. He says, Ignatius, also called Theophorus, to the church that has found mercy in the greatness of the Most High Father, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, to the church beloved and enlightened after the love of Jesus Christ, our God. Affirming the divinity of Christ here, too, by the way. Jesus Christ, our God, by the will of him that has willed everything which is to the church. Now, this is the, he's specifically addressing the church at Rome. To the church which also holds the presidency in the place of the country of the Romans, worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of blessing, worthy of praise, worthy of success, worthy of sanctification, and because you hold the presidency of love, named after Christ and named after the Father. Here, therefore, do I salute in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. So that's from his introduction to, to his letter to the Romans, we're going through St. Paul's letter to the Romans on the Faith Explained right now. But he says that the Roman church holds, holds the presidency in love. It presides in love over all of the other churches. So he, he, it's this really florid language that he uses for the church at Rome. And it, it is on another level. And he also says that the church at Rome has the power to teach everybody else in the universal Catholic church. In chapter 3 of, of the letter to the Romans, he says, You have envied no one. But others you have taught. I desire only that what you have enjoined in your instruction may remain in force. So you've envied no one. You have taught others, though. So the church at Rome has taught others. And then he also just hammers home the fact that Peter and Paul, the apostles, founded the church at Rome. He says, not as Peter and Paul did, do I command you. They were apostles, and I am a convict. (laughs) They were free, and I, even to the present time, am a slave. That's from chapter 4 of his letter to the Romans. So that, that, that's really important. And um, he says a whole bunch of other things in his letters. They're quite beautiful. And again, I, I encourage you to read them. But that bit on the Eucharist in, in chapter 6 of his letter to Smyrna is so powerful. The Eucharistic realism. And, and the writings of the Church Fathers are big on that because in the New Testament, I mean, the New Testament letters are written to people who are already in the church. It's not a how-to-do-church manual for specific things that the, that the early Christians did and, and practiced, you almost have to look at the Apostolic Fathers, where they do lay out a lot of things about worship and the Eucharist uh, in, in a lot more detail. Uh, but it's very, very Catholic. All right, let's go to the phones right now. Let's go to Rudy in Orange County. Hi, Rudy. Rudy. Oh, by the way, the movie was TriStar. That made which, the movie. Which movie? 
Uh, Rudy, remember we talked uh, last oh, week yeah. about <laughs> Oh, yeah. It was Rudy from Disney. Okay, I didn't know it was you for you a second. Okay, okay. Rudy, from, oh, so it's TriStar. That's that's the Rudy movie. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Rudy, uh, Rudy, Rudy. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Actually, I was calling because earlier what, uh, what the guy was saying about how people are rushing. Perfect mm-hmm. example are your crosswalks, especially in the amusement park area. The family is like, why are you willing to take your child across when it's almost green for the other traffic it's like slow down people is it really worth ending your life and crossing to get to the other side Hmm. no no it's it's obviously not the case so no never run to catch a plane never run across mm -hmm. the crosswalk when when it's when it's a stop sign and the other thing i told your caller to look up for you u.s news world and report the timeline of the catholic church the image part of it and actually shows you a mural of Jesus holding the bread and it goes through the church history and you will see how it started the divisions. Yeah. Those are, those infographics are always really, um, really intriguing. And, um, I remember when, when I taught RCIA class, we used, I used to give out this handout when I talked about the church because people sort of, they, they want to know timelines. What happened when, when was the Protestant reformation? When, when did it take place? And, and, and all the the splinter groups that split off from from Martin Luther's Lutheranism, and then of course there's John Calvin with Calvinism, and 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 all the permutations that that uh, derived from the divisions within the Protestant world. The Catholic Church continues on, of course. Uh, the Orthodox churches of the East, which split from us around give or take a thousand A.D., let's say, um, that's that's another interesting argument as well. And um, and yeah, they are real churches because they have all seven sacraments. They still have apostolic succession of bishops so they can confect the Eucharist. But they don't have union with the Pope. Um, and that's the one thing that they're missing, which they used to have, which they used to have. I, I'm a firm believer that the historical record shows really clearly that even the Eastern churches used to submit to the presidency of the church at Rome, just like St. Ignatius of Antioch talked about in his letters. Hey, Rudy, great to hear from you always. Uh, call back anytime. And uh, thanks everybody for listening to the Kale Clark show on Relevant Radio. I am so happy that you did. If you missed any of the show and you want to catch the full episode, the podcast will be up in just a few minutes. I'll be back tomorrow for The Faith Explained, 1230 Central. And once again, on the Kale Clark show, 5 p.m. Central every day, every weekday here on Relevant Radio. Stay tuned for Trending with Timory. Hugh Brown from the American Life League is coming up. Uh, Great guest. And followed by the Family Rosary Across America with Father Rocky. Jim Shaper produced. Patrick Alog took your phone calls. We will eventually make our Super Bowl picks. We've got a few days to do it, but we'll we'll get to that. But uh, thanks for joining me today. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.